So I like to use to say experience. I have the tire tracks on my back to show you how I learned those lessons. Yeah, well, you, you market, learned to the, the market, hard knocks. The market beat them into me. It wasn't like I figured them out without losing money. That's the tuition you have to pay, losing money. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with macro analyst and investor, Bill Fleckenstein. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Bill, in which he explains why rising bond yields are a concerning sign that bond investors are losing their credibility in the Fed's ability to tame inflation, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment options we discuss in this video. And be sure to stick around for the second half of the video where we focus in on the damage being done here to investor sentiment as both stocks and bonds are having their worst start to the year in decades. For all this and more, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Bill Fleckenstein. All right, now let's transition to the, okay, what do you do about this, right? So, so first let's start, Bill, with what is your current outlook, you know, for... Your, your current investment outlook right here. What, what, what's looking interesting to you and what might you be shying away from? Well, I think, I think at the margin, I think real assets um, are attractive. The energy complex, which I don't know as well as say the precious metal complex, you know, the, the, the precious metal complex has been an okay place to be. It hasn't been that great. If the mining stocks, if you owned them for the right five minutes, they were fine. If you didn't, you think they're the worst assets on the planet. Um, and so that hasn't been particularly as um, productive as I, uh, that, as I think it will ultimately be. Uh, it's, there's, but again, part of it is there just aren't enough people that care. Um, and I think the real assets, you know, there's probably uh, a, a good place to be in, in, in the energy area. You know, uh, I, I've started to look at more ideas like, you know, there's whole, I'll throw out some general things where I haven't done a lot of in-depth studying yet, but, you know, you could talk about liquefying natural gas. I mean, what this Ukrainian uh, war has brought into the light for everyone to see is, you know, how, mess, how screwed Europe made itself. Um, with the reliance on gas from, from, from Russia. You know, I think that the, um, and, and the ESG movement has perversely made the very assets that they hate more attractive because it's now clear that, that you can't get there from here. So, you know, people, I mean, I, I, for the longest time, I didn't understand why people weren't more positive on uranium or net gas in terms of clean, efficient types of energy. And uh, so I think they will be beneficiaries. I think we're going to be in this period for quite this ESG fantasy is a fantasy. We're not, you can't get there from here. So I think there's lots of, of, of rare earths or, you know, just plain vanilla energy products that go into trying to get that done, try to even be able to make the things that people want from the so-called green uh, energy. And um Although that you know the products that make the green energy aren't very green, that's why I say so-called. Um, and I think th those will be productive areas. I think the precious, I think precious metals will do quite well, um, even though they've been, like I said, the redheaded stepchild of the financial markets for for quite a while now. 
Um, and uh, um, sorry, can I, can I just ask you to reiterate why you think they'll do well from here? Yeah, um, I think that that the the gold in particular has done okay, you know, in this period of more inflation. It hasn't done as it hasn't gone crazy, even though there's pretty steady uh, bids for bullion around the world and in some of the ETFs. But it hasn't really done anything nutty because I think people still, they believe the Fed narrative. The market is priced in 27 rate hikes. They don't say what I said. Fed's lost control. It's lost credibility. So people that have the color of hair of mine and your beard uh, uh, view things one way. But we're a small sliver of the market I just told you about with the robot, the algos, all these other people. So there hasn't been much interest on the part of people to, to own inflation protection, I don't believe. I mean, maybe people buy tips, but you know, um, you know, the tips go off the CPI, which is understating the inflation rate. So maybe it's better than nothing. So I think, I think that I think that the precious metals and inflation hedge assets are kind of like to say the redheaded stepchild, people don't really believe that they need them. So they start to buy them and then something goes wrong and they sell them at the drop of a hat like it's happened in the mining uh, stocks re, you know, in the last few days. I mean, they were breaking out a week ago on Monday after the Easter weekend. And you know, today they're like headed back to the lows um, just because there's no conviction, I don't think. And- uh, Hey, Jerome, can I, can I just ask this question? So, you know, when the robot cares, it'll matter, right? Because the robot's so freaking huge. Um, and you said that that's where a lot of the pension and retirement money is. But after the past four months that we've had, the past six months we've had in terms of just inflation getting out of control and being top of mind and you know, cost of living and a lot of key things going up by double digits year after year, like what else needs to happen for them to get the memo on this? Okay, well, well first of all, two things. One, I forgot to mention, and, and you reminded me I forgot to mention, it's kind of a big deal. And the second thing, remember, the robot buys according to its index. It doesn't buy because I think inflation hedge is what I want. I mean, Vanguard's got their index and everything, and they got the weightings and they buy according to their weightings of this, this massive index. So it doesn't make a decision. Now, if enough people bought Newmont and got the weighting higher, it would buy more Newmont in proportion to the dollars coming in than it did before. But, but somebody else has That's to a do great that point. job. It just, it just keeps voting the same way. So it can't change that. It can it, 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 it can it can validate it. It can say Apple's worth three three trillion, and because it's worth three trillion and it's the biggest weighting in my index, I got to buy more of it when I get a dollar. Okay, I think part of what happened to the metals, which kind of gave them a bad start, which kept people from saying, "Gosh, this is what we need to own," is crypto. I mean, crypto is a two trillion dollar kind of a market. And I think it's particularly popular with thoughtful millennials who have seen what's what they think they, they can see the issues that I've described about the Fed. They can re, they can regurgitate them better than I can. Remember, uh, and and so a lot of money went there. Uh, and and so if you had some big piece of that two trillion shopping in the metals and mining sector, the prices be, would be a whole lot different than when they are. So I think what's happened slowly is crypto has been a little bit discredited as an inflation asset because the way it trades is it trades like a, a levered NASDAQ name. 
And so if that continues to happen, then more of the people that thought they had protection via that might come over to gold. And so I think it's been a, it's been a real drag on the performance of the precious metals because you know, there's not an insubstantial number of millennials. I mean, there's more of them than the, than the, the, the boomers now is I think, I think that's correct. And, uh, and, and so I, and I, I think they are, they've not seen a Fed do a bad job. They understand the theories because you can see them talk about it when they discuss crypto. Um, so I, th I think that's the other part of it. All right. Okay. So um, sort of talking on the equity side, uh, you think you, you like real assets and you, and you have liked them when you've been on this program before. Um, you made good cases for, for energy, for precious metals. Um, how about bonds as a class? I mean, radioactive here, wouldn't touch them. They're, they're a better deal than they were. <laughs> uh, it's way too soon to want to own them, I think. I mean, for a trade, you know, is the, is the stock market going to get roughed up a little bit right here and now? Uh, you know, like today, the market with the bond market. Look, the bond market's been a one-way street now for a couple of months, and sentiment is so bad. You know, could 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 the bounce? Could the could you have some relief rallies? Sure. So yeah, could bonds yeah. bounce four bounce four or five points? And sure. Yeah. And, but let's uh, project out sort of the rest of the year. You know, uh, I still can't. We have to see how the Fed plays the hand and how the markets reactively play. We haven't even had the meeting where they start where they get into where they're in their so-called aggressive mode. That's coming up in on May fifth. So we can't we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. We got to play it like, see what they do, see how the market responds. But no, I mean, I want to own bonds after the bond market stops them. I want we got to be in the ninth inning of the printing press, taking away the printing press game, and like maybe we're in two, three, maybe right now, right? So it's way too soon for me to want to own bonds. Now, if I had if if if, if you know if I was in a situation where I had to, or somebody came to me, and they had to own some bonds. I guess you could you could decide where on the curve you think is the best place to be, and it, it's not the tremendous beat that it was, uh, but I, I got no interest in buying them. I want to buy them when they when the bond market finally takes the printing press away from the Fed, when the Fed gets to humble, when the Fed goes back to the way they used to be, which was even Greenspan did this before he let his ego get out of get out of hand in the mid '90s, and then the Fed used to say, "Look, we don't really know the future." We know that if we stimulate, that helps things. And then we know we got to unwind that stimulus because if we don't, we'll have either acid inflation, which is very dangerous, or we'll have CPI inflation, which we know we don't like and can get out of control. So because we don't know the future, we, we know we eased, we got to take it back because we know things bad things happen if we don't. That's what the Fed used to do. And Greenspan actually did a little bit of that in the early 90s. And then he got his ego got out of control and he thought he knew the future and they thought they knew all this stuff. And now we've had 25 years of this insane begging for more inflation. They even made up the 2% inflation target. That, that doesn't exist. They made it up. And it's like a lot of things we learned in COVID. If you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it. People will believe it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it just became air cover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, 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 um, so what I want to see the, the dream buying opportunity is when the bond market has chastened the central banks to where they say, you know, we're going to change our operating policy. We're going to go back to what we used to do. We have to admit we don't know the future and we don't really know exactly the, you know, how the leads and lags go with monetary policy. That was always conventional wisdom until mid nineties. 
And this is the part that I think a lot of younger people aren't really well versed in. So they don't quite understand why right. things it's are because they haven't lived through it. I mean, they, 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 haven't lived they weren't alive back then. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're quite a ways away from there. I mean, I think the Fed still believes it still believes its own press clippings. Yeah, it's, it's so funny just to give another analogy. So um, I, I, I do have a little bit of white in my beard, as you so kindly pointed out. Um, and I was born to hair still dark. Yeah, a little bit. What I have left. Um, it, but I was born two or three weeks before Nixon took the dollar off the the, you know, the gold standard. You know, when he slammed the gold window shut, and uh, you know, and so my whole life I've only known you know a fiat dollar, right? A completely fiat dollar. Um, and so you know, up, up until I got educated, I just sort of thought that was the way the dollar had always been, right? And it's it's just like what you're saying here. With so many of today's investors now are just you know anybody under my age, basically, you know, doesn't remember a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I see people who talk about inflation that I can tell didn't live any piece of that because they don't appreciate the mindset and the beliefs. And I used to talk about this all the time about the, the mindset, inflation psychology and how it causes you to behave. And it was so ingrained in people that even after Volcker had broken the back of inflation, and the stock market rallied and the economy started to come back in 82, 83. In 84, there was a big backup in yields. I think, I think treasuries got to, I think they got to 12 again, but it might only have been 10. Um, and, and, and because people were certain that because the economy came back, inflation was going to come roaring back. And Milton Friedman was out on the talk circuit. I even went to see him. And I decided, you know, I used to think the guy was pretty bright and he was great. And, and, and I realized he's dead wrong. Inflation is not coming back just because of this. And, uh, and, and, and I was the young guy in our shop. I, was, I started running, managing money in, um, in 82. And I was lucky to team up with a couple of older guys who were really smart. And I said, well, why can't rates just fall? I mean, we've got inflation under control. And, and this guy around the shop who was a really smart guy and taught me a ton said, you know what, the, how much money would the demand would be for money if rates got down to like seven or 8% or some number like that? As smart as he was, he couldn't even envision rates coming down that far. And so it's because people get trained and now they can't envision the other side of this. And uh, you kind of have to have lived it and to understand it. Uh, uh, so unless human nature and, and, nature in the form of you know the problems that we have and wars and disruptions from uh, the two big communist countries unless somehow they cooperate magically this is going to be a real battle getting the, getting inflation under control and i don't believe they can do it without some kind of a big train wreck and the train wreck might be caused by something that breaks along the way or because they and this is what i think will happen they will declare victory too soon the bond market will see it for what it is, say, nope, you're wrong. Now we don't trust you. People will see they don't trust you. They'll start talking about the bond vigilantes again. The bond vigilantes, for those who don't know, were the people that were making that were supposedly making the bond rates rise because they didn't trust the Fed, which is not, they're not called that today. Now it's we're pricing in Fed rate hikes. Back then <laughs> they called them bond vigilantes. And really what they were were. They, they were yield curve riders. You can't ride the yield curve when it's inverted badly, right? When short rates are way above long rates, you can't, you can't play the carry game. You can still play the carry game now. It's just not, you can't play it very well. So we will have, 
the bond vigilantes. People will sell bonds because they don't want them because they don't trust them. And they don't trust the Fed. And in that period, that's when you want to start looking to own bonds for real and think about, okay, maybe I'm going to I'm going to own some 20-year paper, 15-year paper. But in like I say, that's the ways off still. All right, great. When we get to that territory, obviously, folks, this is my commitment to you all watching. We will bring Bill back on and pick his brain then. Um, all right, one last asset class before I get to shorting and then we'll wrap things up. Um, real estate. You know, real estate's been on fire. Prices are still hanging in there, surprisingly, given how fast mortgage rates have almost doubled. Um, what do you, what's your outlook for real estate from here? And I, I know you're not a real estate expert, but you, you understand debt. So what do you think? Very difficult to say. I could argue, again, you have to separate real estate into residential or commercial or, or, or like transaction or like retail versus office. So I don't even want to discuss anything commercial related because it's way over my pay grade. All right. Well, most people and, are watching and, are regular people, so they care yes, about the residential market. I think, I, think, I think the local aspect matters a great deal. I mean, it might be terrible in Portland. It might be in Portland, Oregon. It might be great in Portland, Maine. You know, it, it depends on what's going on locally, and that's going to matter a lot. But in terms of psychology, it's hard to see. It was very, very clear to me that the real estate prices were going to collapse in, in 2006, seven. I mean, that was obvious. I mean, I, I, I wrote that in my book, right. And I wrote it in my columns every day. And this was obvious. We had a bubble that was going to burst and it was going to shred, shred everything. We don't exactly have a bubble that way now. Um, uh, certainly not from a lending standpoint. So it could be that prices of real estate hang on longer than people think because they think that it's going to work. And maybe, you know, 5% mortgages are high, but I mean, I can remember when mortgage rates were in double digits and people were still buying real estate. Now it took the bloom off the rose from a price standpoint. And so um, it could hang on longer than people think and, and create a perverse chasing of prices again, or it could roll over tomorrow. I just, I don't have a strong viewpoint. It's, 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 it's too tricky right here, I think. Uh, so I, I don't really know. Um, and um, I, I could see either way. I, I don't think prices are going to go crazy in real estate. I think we've had that part of the movie. And, you know, I think I mean, flat, but maybe not as bad as people think. Um, or it could get ugly quickly. I, I just don't know. All right, Bill. Well, look, as, as I mentioned, uh, or like I did earlier, um, if folks, enough folks in the comments section want me to do this, I'll bring on a housing uh, market expert soon, because uh, I know folks have lots of huge questions with you know mortgage rates going up as fast as they have. And, you know, that's that's killed the refi market. Uh, that's killed the HELOC market, which brought, you know, a lot of, a lot of capital into this. Um, uh, you know, we have potentially new supply coming in in a lot of different markets that, that we've been sort of, you know, hearing about a lot recently. So there could be a lot of factors that, that you know, add increasing weight to housing going forward. But to your point, you know, we'll wait and see. Yeah. And there's been, I've, 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 I've read of layoffs in the, in the mortgage origination uh, food chain. So it's having an impact. That's, that's for sure. Okay. All right. Um, well, look, uh, I, I want to just sort of wrap up here, getting back to, you know, what many people have known you for in your past, which is your shorting acumen. Um, is this an environment 
is it, is this becoming an environment where shorting potentially makes sense? I mean, obviously, if somebody was short since the beginning of the year, they probably did pretty well. Um, what what are your shorting, you know, what's your shorting expertise telling you here? If you're going to be short for real, you got to be able to manage all those positions and manage the risk, which is very difficult given the fact that the tape is squirrely as it is. So you can look with hindsight at all the Kathy Wood stocks, for instance, and those kind of stocks are really all about total addressable market. They didn't really have any financials or anything like that. A lot of those have been destroyed and I'm sure people have caught them. I tend to not be in those kind of imagination stocks until later in the process because it was too easy to get run over. You know, if, if something stupid can trade at, you know, 200 times sales, why can't it trade at 800 times sales? So um, in, in, the, in the more real companies, um, I think there's plenty of trouble and there's been plenty of damage as you can see. Um, but I was short a bit back when we, I think we spoke around there somewhere. And then I kind of I got out of the way when it looked like the, when March we tested the low from February, which is about where we were this morning. And it held, I thought, well, maybe they'll make a story. Now we'll get a big you know, bounce and we'll see if it's going to fail or get back to the new highs or what'll happen. And well, we, we didn't get back to the new highs. It failed and we came back to the lows. I would really like to see those lows taken out to feel good about being aggressively short. Again, it's about managing your book of, of exposure. So if you have a little bit of exposure, if you're 10% short or 15 or 20, or maybe some number like that, particularly if you have longs against them and they track each other, it's not a big deal. When I ran my short book, I wasn't long. I was all short and I always be aggressively short. I mean, I used to think that, you know, 80% short was being flat <laughs> and I would run <laughs> over a hundred quite often. I couldn't do that today. I couldn't do that today if I had tomorrow's Wall Street Journal because it's too unpredictable what'll happen. So, I mean, I got a tiny amount of shorts on. I was going to increase them if we Break the if we, if we broke the lows today, which we didn't, maybe we will this week. I happen to think Apple's pretty vulnerable. Um, I don't think it can be a $3 trillion company. I don't think the growth rates, I don't think any of the fundamentals support that. I don't think fundamentals have mattered a whole hell of a lot in a lot of things. And they're going to report this week. I don't see how they make the number. I don't see how they make the guidance, although they don't give guidance, but what people think. So I think it's vulnerable, but I, and I, I, but I, I put, I own it, I, I'm sorry, I'm shorted via puts rather, rather than outright. I have some expire this week, some are gonna expire in October because I think by that time, you know, financial gravity will have done its work to the downside somehow. So I think companies, are, and, and you know, I think Amazon's gonna be, gonna have trouble this week, I'm not involved. Um, but I really, when I was, the thing that I learned about short selling for me was it wasn't really about the analysis, it was about the tactics. When can I be aggressively short? When do I have to be tactically short? Okay, I caught this, I got to take it. As opposed to being a, from an, it's like in, in, in embedded on the short side. Okay, I got the news I wanted, now I'm going to press the short. Now, you can't do that very often. And that's what I used to be, what I think I was good at was knowing when to just take the money or get out of the way or press it. And the environment is such that I can't do that now because of the nature of the robot and the other things we've talked about. So I have to be less short than I might like to be until something changes where I feel better about that. So the only other thing I did is I put on a tiny, tiny sliver of Tesla because 
the fundamentals don't justify that. And as much as I'm a free speech advocate and I applaud Elon for his free speech verbiage and his, I hope he's committed to it, I think perversely for him, owning Twitter will make the people that hate free speech, which is a lot of the regulators and people in charge, uh, uh, cause him some grief in his Tesla business. So that's kind of a roundabout way of saying, I think I have a catalyst in Tesla that didn't exist before. And I have a tiny, tiny position because the thing is so crazy, but it, there's no way that the price matches up with the underlying business, given the competition and all the other things, costs and everything that's going up. So, um, but, but, but that's kind of how I like to think about it. I, I, you know, what away from the fundamentals of X, Y, Z that I'm short, what other things might help it go down? You know, and, and the thing about a stock like Apple is, well, I, I don't have anything against their products, even though I don't use them for, for reasons that are, you know, about their ecosystem. Um, if we have real trouble, it won't be able to support this. Everyone's crowded into this. So you've got all the dynamic of everyone hiding in that such that if you can get it to go down a little bit on disappointment, it could really feed on itself. So I could get an outsized payday but you don't have to pay for that in the premium of the puts because a lot of times big, big, what I call them big, ugly, heavy stocks like that, even though Apple's supposed to be sexy, the put premiums aren't priced like that. So you can get a better bang for your buck than going out to buy some, you know, try to buy puts on ARC or some ETF. So um, anyway, we're not really in the part of the game where I feel comfortable really getting aggressive, even though if I, when I look at the tape, I think, God, there's a million of these things that I could have caught but I, I didn't try for the reasons I just described. All right, great, thanks. That was actually a great sort of peek inside the mind of a you know, experienced short seller here in terms of how you just sort of looked at all those, those opportunities you just mentioned. As, um, I like, as I like to use to say experience, I have the tire tracks on my back to show you how I learned those lessons. Yeah, well, you, the you market, learned through the, the market, knocks. The market beat them into me. It wasn't like I figured them out without losing money. That's the tuition you have to pay, losing money. Right. Well, and that that I think is is you know the great benefit we're offering here, where you're sharing that wisdom here, and and the reason why I'm hammering on this is because, and I think we've talked about this in the past, but I've also talked about this with our advisors, and we, they're going to come on after we talk with you here, Bill, like they normally do, and we're going to reiterate this message, which is, you know, shorting it, it it's tough. It's tougher than being long. Um, and what I wanted people to tell, what I want people to take away from your answer there is that even a highly, highly experienced uh, market short seller thinks this is a, you know, a, a tough time to be short and, and isn't really leaning hard into it until you see some of the indicators you mentioned. And if I heard you right, you're saying a big one for you is going to see us taking out those March lows, that you're right. not going to really get aggressive until you see it's, something like that. Because it, it's the managing the risk of being short. Managing that risk is what people don't appreciate. What if I get this wrong? What if it goes five points against me? How am I going to like, how am I going to feel about that? Am I going to cover it? Am I going to fold my arms? I wouldn't sell more. I never, I never average up in shorts. Never. So um, there are things that I learned the hard way and it's just not as easy as it looks. Now, the flip side is stocks go up in an escalator and they come down in an elevator. So when you get it right, you, get, you, can, you, get a, you can get a big return quickly, but getting to that point is way harder than it looks. And that's the part that I think people need to keep in mind. Yeah, and, and we talked about this last time, so I won't, I won't beat the horse dead here, but I mean, you, you can really... <laughs> 
you can really get beaten up pretty hard waiting to get proven right. And, and if you're too early, that's exactly the same as being wrong. You can really, really get hurt. And unfortunately, the way you learn these things is by losing money. And so if you're going to start something new like short selling, the best thing that can happen is you, you lose on your first five or six or seven of them in a small way and you learn the lesson and then you get bigger later. But that's not what people tend to do. Yours, yours truly included. Right. And, and all, all I'll say here, and then we'll wrap things up is, is folks, if you are potentially interested in adding some short positions to your portfolio, and look, I, I think we're in a market environment where, as Bill yeah. said, having some some small digit right. percentage is probably quite, you know. Yeah, especially if you can find, find something that, that is related to what you're doing. And if, and if you've got the superior idea and uh, the market goes down just because of market forces, the thing you're short goes down more. So a lot of really successful short sellers were just using the shorts to manage their long book. I, I didn't do it that way, but a lot of guys did. So you just have to think it looks as easy as making money on the long side looks when you're just watching and you're not doing it. Making money on the short side looks even easier, even though it's 10 times harder. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, so the point I was going to make I'll just finish it because you just gave me another point to talk about here um, is, you know, if you were thinking you would like to add a short position to your portfolio uh, and you're not highly experienced, as I do every week, I highly recommend you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who do have who does have that experience and they can help come up with a plan for you and they can set, you know, a strategy, they can set an exit strategy so that you're not just groping around in the dark, you know, you're actually benefiting. I always, every time I get started on something on the short side, I look at, okay, if, if I'm wrong in the short run, where's it going to go? You know, I look at the chart a lot of times because that tells you where other people are going to do stuff. And I will say, okay, if it gets there, I'm covering it. Or if it gets here, I'm covering it um, and, and I'm out. I mean, I'm just, I, I always figure out where am I going to get, where am I going to throw in the towel? That's the first thing I figure out. Basically, you figure you're out before you get in is what you're saying, right? Exactly. Where am I going to give up? Okay, if I have to give up here, okay, what am I? And then the downside, I can kind of like take care of itself a little bit. But anyway. Great. Okay. And then the other point I just wanted to quickly uh, mention is, uh, so you, you talked about sort of, you know, taking a short strategy to complement a long strategy. And uh, I, I just did this and I, I, I don't trade an awful lot, um, but relatively recently, a few weeks back, I put out on Twitter that I had taken uh, a, a short position as a hedge against my mining position. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually did it through options. And, uh, you know, so far this week, it's actually worked out quite well. Now, now, so, so there's, there's, there's a really good example. So I have my four or five mining favorites. And let's, let's just say that I was smart enough to pick the best ones. Whereas there's the GDX which I think has a lot of mediocre companies in it because there aren't that many really good mining companies. So I sometimes will do what you did. I will just say, you know what? I'm a little nervous about this. Um, I'll, I'll just be short a little GDX against my basket of things that I think are superior. And that's, that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. Sometimes I buy dust because I'm feeling frisky. That's the, that's the double bet on the same thing, but you know, so, right. so exactly. So I, I, I bought uh, calls on dust, dust. which is okay. the inverse junior mining fund, right? So why yeah. didn't you tell me that was going to work? I could have bought them too. Ah, you know what? Well, <laughs> ne next time I'll give you a call. We'll, 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 we'll trade secrets. Um, all right. Well, look, in wrapping up here, Bill, I'm looking at the time here. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time, putting up with a couple of technical hitches no, while we did this. For folks that want to follow you, um, 
you know, have enjoyed this conversation, want to follow you from here, um, where can they go? Well, I, I put out random bits of information or I like, or I try to find people that I think are interesting and I, I, and I tag what they say on, on Twitter and my handle is at FleckCap. Um, and then I write a column at FleckensteinCapital.com. I've been writing a column uh, since 1996 and I've been answering questions uh, since 2003 or four. So I answer a lot of questions and that's on my website and that's a paid site, but it's pretty cheap. It's 120 or $130 a month. I don't even remember. So it's, I just wanted to charge enough to make people have to pay because I'm not doing it if it's free. <laughs> All right. Well, look, Bill, uh, when we edit this, we will put the the URLs to sure, your Twitter I handle. I, I don't really website. care. I don't really care about that. You know, but... I know you don't, but I know that people watching okay. here who oh, right. should we okay. to say okay. are going to want to follow up. Okay. okay. Um, all right. Look, well, as I said multiple times through this, um, as we get more information, as we begin to go through sure. you know, the, the journey that we're going ahead here, we get more data points. Um, love to have you back on to continue to call audibles for us as to where you think things are headed next. <laughs> Okay, I'd be happy to do that. I always enjoy the conversations with you because you ask really good questions and you get me to talk about things that I hadn't thought about in a long time. So bravo to you. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Bill. Okay, see ya. All right, well, now is the time of the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisors by Wealthion, uh, to get their two cents on what, uh, what Bill just said, but also to talk about what's happened in the markets since last week. As usual, I'm joined by John Lodra and Mike Preston. Guys, great to see you again. Mike, why don't we start with you? What were your takeaways from what Bill just said? It, it was a fascinating talk, Adam. Thank you. Just some high points, some things that I wrote down as I was listening that, that I agree with. You know, Bill talks about um, economic growth is going to be slow. You know, he used the words, I'll take the under on economic growth and the over on inflation. We too think that's right, at least long term. Over the next several years to a decade, we're almost certainly going to have inflation problems that are more than just the short term spikes that we see. And whether or not we have a deflationary drop first in the, in the, in the zero to two year time frame, we're not sure. We still think that's likely, but longer term, inflation is, is almost certainly going to be a problem. And he says, what keeps the central banks from printing money? You know, it's, it's, we get the question all the time. Why can't they just do this forever? It's possible. Maybe they can do it forever. But what eventually causes them to have to stop is the currency. The currency weakens. Confidence is lost in the currency. He used the Japanese, uh, the Bank of Japan and the Japanese yen as an example. Long term, we wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. Short term, the dollar is strong. Uh, we mentioned on this program before, Brent Johnson and his dollar milkshake theory. That makes sense to us. At least that we, you know, for the short term, the dollar should have some strength. Longer term, we've got to think that the, the Fed is probably going to be forced to print money like mad. Not that they haven't already done that, but if we have a real deflationary bust, stock market crash, they've, they've, they've proven that they really have no restraint thus far. Why should they have it now? So they will probably print like crazy. And, uh, and hopefully some sort of moment of justice will come. And that is a decline in the dollar. Now, I don't think that any of us really want all the negative ramifications for that, but there has to be some sense of normality in a system, a sense of freedom and free market prices. And it's probably going to be the currency or weakness of the currency that would do that. And there's just a lot of other things that he talked about there. I'll probably uh, pause, but you know, like normal, it's uh, we, we were talking about the Fed and other central banks. They dominate 
everything that we do uh, in the financial markets right now. All right. Well, well said. And just in a couple of points you said there, you talked about Bill saying he'll take the under on economic growth. Um, since we, we're, we're, we're chatting, I'm chatting here with you guys uh, a couple of days after we recorded the first part with Bill. Uh, and Bill and I were talking about um, what GDP growth looked like it was going to be for the first quarter of this year. And it was, I think, like 1.3% is what the Atlanta Fed GDP now was projecting. Well, this morning, the official uh, Q1 GDP number just came out. And it was negative 1.4%. Um, so we're already seeing the under begin to express itself here on economic growth. Um, you know, we get another quarter of Q2 is negative economic growth as well. That is, by definition, technically a recession. Um, but it does raise the question: which are we are we maybe further into recession right now than folks you know had realized? Um, love to get your guys' thoughts on that. Um, but one other thing I want to mention quickly too is. Uh, you talk about how you know, the dollar is really strong right now. And I just want to remind people, when we say that the US dollar is strong, we are comparing it to other currencies. And today, pretty much all major uh, currencies are fiat currencies. Uh, Japan, the yen is weakening strongly right now for the reasons that Bill talked about earlier in the video. Um, so yes, uh, the yen is weakening versus the, the, the dollar. And that's because Japan is printing like mad right now, where uncharacteristically, the US is uh, stopping printing and then about to go into a quantitative tightening, tightening phase. At least that's what they say is going to happen. Um, what I want to remind folks, though, is, is even though the dollar is strong um, versus other currencies, it can be weakening versus other assets um, like real tangibles, commodities, et cetera, gold, great, is, is, is you know classic benchmark. So, um, you know, his, historically, when the U.S. dollar has strengthened, gold has weakened, but there's really nothing at all uh, to prevent gold, uh, sorry, the U.S. dollar from strengthening versus other fiat currencies and gold strengthening versus the U.S. dollar. And, you know, we're seeing right now with inflation and you know, also kind of the, the, I don't want to say the crisis trade yet, but people are getting nervous. Um, we could very, very easily later this year see the dollar remain strong for all those dollar milkshake reasons you alluded to, Mike, um, but still see gold outperform the dollar. Not necessarily saying that's going to happen, but it easily could happen. All right, John, let, let me come to you. Um, I guess first, um, uh, you know, react to what Bill said and anything that Mike and I just said, but I also want to talk about a chart that you sent over. Yeah, I always, uh, always enjoy Bill's uh, perspective and comments, and I can't help but... Uh, express some envy for his full head of hair. Um, I, I, I used to be able to do something like that, but no longer. Um, no, I, think, I, think, I think Bill um, hit on some really important things. He talked about, and Mike alluded to it, you know, the, the revolt going on in, in the Japanese um, you know, yen and, and the bond markets there. The, the central, the Bank of Japan has been forced to either pick sides of, of sticking to their yield cur curve control, which is basically to try to you know, cap the 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 rise in, in bond interest rates, or or protect the currency, and you can't do both. Uh, and he speaks of of that likely having a similar kind of eventual path here in the U.S. Um, and he he uses that as a um, as a a point to say that the bond market isn't so much pricing in Fed rate heights, but it's it's basically revolting at the policies, right? And and and. He think there's he think there's a lot more revolt yet to happen, and and therefore, like we we don't think the bond market is is safe green light by any stretch. We have toe dipped and added some 
tactical short-term, you know, kind of positions in, in some, some bonds given the recent sell-off. But we think there's going to be a, a, a revolt, a, a very big revolt in the bond market if the policies that, that people keep talking about doubling down on, you know, um, quantitative easing, whatnot, if the Fed blinks, in other words, and doesn't start to tighten policy like they, they've been sig signaling. Um, but um, yeah, so um, yeah, the chart that I, I sent you, Adam, um, I don't want to make too much out of it, but it, it's a chart that I think speaks to you know, what we what we believe is a change in, in character of this market. And it basically is a chart that shows, um, you know, kind of the percentage, uh, you know, uh, average uh, duration of, of, of down days in uh, sequential down days in the S&P, uh, as well as the return after a down day. And, you know, this may seem insignificant, but, you know, so far this year, um, the uh drop in the S&P is that duration of a decline is, has averaged uh, two and a half days, which isn't long in, as, a, as a metric unto itself, but it's a pretty dramatic duration when compared uh, in the longest span of history. Um, you know, any, the last time it was like this was in the 70s <laughs> in terms of that. And, and, you know, all to say is that it appears the, you know, kind of the veneer of this buy every dip mindset that's been very prevalent for the last decade or more has has seemingly lost its luster or, or its confidence. Um, I, I would like to temper that. You know, we are seeing some pretty um, bearish sentiment out there. If you look at some surveys like the uh, AAII survey, which is the American Association of Individual Investors survey, you know, it's got a a preponderance of bears relative to bulls that hasn't been seen since the bottoms of the markets in 2009 in the housing bust. Now, normally that's a contrary ind indicator that would say, hey, you know, this sentiment's gotten too negative here, you know, that would be consistent with, you know, a psychological basis for near-term bouts here. Um, but, you know, I think I kind of I want to hearken to uh, Bill Fleckenstein's comments there about, you know, the, 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 the uh, robot, the massive robot there in the form of index funds. In some ways, some of these sentiment indicators have been neutered because the, the, the active managers behind these, these sentiments are, are being dwarfed by this, this, this broader index machine. Um, and you know, I think this, this has great implications. You know, David um, Hunter, for example, his, his work that you had on last week is, is very much contrarian based. And you know, I think we like, like Bill, you know, have some skepticism as to the reliability of some of these you know, sentiment indicators that you know, when, when a market was more pure and functioning without the monetary interventions could be more reliable indicators of, of near-term moves. Um, yeah, I guess I'll leave it at that for now, Adam. All right, you know, it's a really interesting point because um, I've long said that, um, you know, uh, market cycles end with a reversal in sentiment, right? Where, you know, things can get much crazier than you think. Um, both on the bullish or the bearish side, um, but the reversal the reversal doesn't happen until you pass that that critical inflection point where you know let's say in a bull market run where the the marginal buyer changes from a net buyer to a net seller, right? Um, and that is basically it's a sentiment shift, and it's you can you can look at the data, you know, you can have all your opinions and whatnot, but at the end of the day. Um, what changes the market direction is you get that that shift in net sentiment from net net positive to net negative. 
Um, and what's important here, you showed that graph, which basically is showing that that sentiment is finally eroding in, in the, the equity markets. You know, we've, we've had this, you know, since the March 09 lows, or so 2009 lows, um, we've, we've had this pretty bulletproof, you know, positive sentiment in the equity markets that has, has you know, grinded them higher up until their dizzying heights that they were at at the end of last year in December. Um, the bloom does now seem to be off that rose. And so it just opens the, the, the question here, which is, okay, so how, how far does this have to run if, if sentiment is shifting from net positive to net negative? Um, but as you rightly bring up here in Bill Flagged, we have this big robot that's now in the mix that we didn't really have in previous um, market cycles in the past. And that may muddy the waters here, but I do wanna pair the eroding sentiment in the equity market with the fact that the bond market, um, this is from the Wall Street Journal, they're saying, uh, they report that the, the bond market had the, its worst quarter in over 40 years. And April has actually performed even worse. Um, so the sentiment in the bond market is, is pretty horrid right now. <laughs> so I think we're at a really interesting stage here because as you said, um, John, uh, we may be getting kind of overly negative on, on the sentiment side of things, and that could provide the, the wall of worry for a, a bullish relief rally to, uh, to begin with from here. But it also raises the question, well, you know, wait a minute, maybe this is a secular change in sentiment, and we've been at these sort of bubble highs, and do we get to the point where enough people have said, hey, the emperor is actually guys doesn't have any clothes on, um, does that then get us to the point where sentiment begins cascading, where everybody wakes up and says, oh my gosh, this whole thing's been built on you know, a phantom promise and get me out of here before this thing gets any worse, right? That's, that's the danger. That's sort of the, the flag we've been waving for many, many, many months on this program could happen. So who knows what's gonna happen exactly next from here, but I just wanna flag that, that sentiment is playing a really important role here. And we, we've just come off, you know, the first four months of this year where sentiment's really taken a, a bunch of kidney punches. <laughs> and it's going to be interesting to see if it can get off the mat or, or you know, if we get to a TKO stage from here. So anyways, um, uh, Mike, I'll come back to you here for a second. But um, another thing that we just gave sort of brief sh shrift to in the discussion with Bill um, is quantitative tightening. Right. So, you know, the Fed uh, has done one rate hike. It's talking tough like it's going to do a 50 basis point hike uh, coming up here in May. Um, and it's talking that you know, it's going to do more as the year goes on. Um, but but also May is when quantitative tightening should begin to actually take effect. And Bill, you know, is saying he thinks that people are really underestimating the impact that that's going to have on asset prices. What are you thinking? Yeah, Adam. I mean, I, th I think that the the, the S and P five hundred being down twelve percent or so at the at the current price, from an extreme extreme extension above even the highest valuations we've ever seen before, is is hardly off the all time high. Yes, I know some of the short term sentiment indicators seem to be negative, like AAII that John just mentioned, but there's a lot of others as well that are still pinned towards the uh, optimistic side, you know, for instance, the percentage of cash held in mutual funds is still extremely low. And, Sorry, if you look you know, at the, the put call ratio, it's it's not that negative. It's it. it yeah, and we, we're expecting, you know, and the timing is impossible. We're expecting a bigger secular, if you will, shift into a bear market, particularly from these valuations. As we've said 
so many times, timing is impossible, but we really don't think it's different this time. And so it's difficult to say with sentiment indicators like that, um, what the exact timing will be. And frankly, if you do think that we're getting a major sentiment or a major secular move, you know, you would expect sentiment to be negative at the kickoff of that. So how do you know you we're not just at the kickoff of a multi-year bear market? So we, we're not short-term traders here. We do care about the macro backdrop more than anything. Um, uh, so, you know, that's, that's what we see. You asked, I think, though, about you were asking about quantitative tightening, I think, Adam. Yeah, and, and let, let, me, let me just clarify why. So, you know, for the past decade plus, the Fed has been, you know, the, the buyer of last resort. Um, yeah. And uh, there are, as Bill said, you know, the new assets are going to still come onto the market all the time, right? And people are going to need, they're going to issue bonds, they're going to issue stock, they're, they're going to need that stuff to get bought. And the question is, is, you know, even if the Fed isn't pushing what's on its balance sheet out into the market, um, which would sort of force perhaps sort of fire sale type pricing, um, even if it just says, look, we're not going to we're not going to sell anything. We're just going to let assets roll off our balance sheet. Well, you know, Treasury bonds are still going to need to get bought and whatnot. And the question is, is if the Fed's not being the buyer now, who is going to be the buyer and how much less than the Fed are they going to be a buyer at, right? Are they going to be willing to pay similar prices to what the Fed was willing to pay? To be honest, there aren't that many other buyers out there who have the unlimited checkbook the way the Fed does, right? So, you know, what's that discount between that next highest buyer and the Fed once the Fed leaves the picture? It could be, it could be much lower. So I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, I think so, Adam. I think that people are underestimating the ramifications of the, the Fed, the 800-pound gorilla, not being in that market anymore. And if the Fed's not buying bonds, who's buying bonds, right? And Bill talked about, you know, the bond market's revolting and probably will continue to re revolt. He's probably right. We're not um, wanting to hold long-term bonds for a very long period of time. We think that they're short-term overdone and that they'll likely bounce from here. The bond market's already priced in the full expected move uh, of the Fed, like 2.25%. It's already done that, even though the Fed's already moved, I think, a quarter point, only a quarter point, the bond market rapidly priced in their expectations. And so, yeah, we think that downward pressure on equity prices particularly is, is coming. We've hardly seen anything, like I just mentioned, from the top. We're very, very close to all-time high valuations and prices here. And um, would not be surprised short term to see a bond market bounce and maybe a, a slight decline in yields. That's why, as John mentioned earlier, we've been building a position in an ETF that holds U.S. Treasury bonds greater than 20 years in, in, in maturity and duration. So, uh, yeah, we haven't even seen the first whiff of panic in this market. The first time we saw a 90% down day, and that's a day in which 90% of NYSC stocks ended the day um, with, with, a, with a downward move in price happened last Friday, I believe was the day. So, and we haven't seen that in almost a year before then, something like seven to 10 months. So the, the nature of the market is changing. I think that we're sitting here at the February lows down 12% from the all time high. We have not breached those lows. Today is a pretty solid up day. So maybe it'll take longer to breach them. But again, we haven't even seen, I don't think the first leg down, which um, you know, should we break those lows, the February lows that we're looking at 3,800 to 4,000 range on the S&P should get there pretty quickly. And even then, I think it would be only the first leg 
in what is going to be a more extended bear market. So we want to continue to be cautious. We're looking to be tactical, maybe short term down in that area. But uh, other than that, yes, people are underestimating the downside risk in these assets here. All right. And, and to your points there about cautious and tactical, John, I'm coming to you here now. Um, just want to give you a chance to comment on you know, any new positioning that you guys have done in the portfolio. Um, you know, Mike mentioned that you're sort of adding to some of those long bonds here right now for perhaps a short term rally. Um, but you guys, you know, as you say every week on this program, I mean, you, you, you're, you're, you're cautious. You've been cautious for a while. And, you know, I know in past years, it's been hard to be cautious given where asset prices have gone up because FOMO is raging. But certainly your cautious approach has really paid off so far um, in 2022, you know, with the markets down, whatever they are now, around 15, 13%, 14%, whatever. Um, can you just comment real briefly on kind of how your general portfolio is faring right now? Yeah, in a word, it's, it's, it's faring, faring just fine. Um, you know, there certainly isn't uh, red carnage on our client statements uh, in, in, in this year so far. We've had some some up, upward moves and and some some give back on that, but our clients are are generally um, doing just fine this year, and hopefully that and we hear from many, it's translating to peace of mind. Of course, there's this ever present, um, you know, when do we get back in kind of uh, uh, impulse that we've all been trained to 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 want to go after, and and uh, you know we try to to you know really guide ourselves and our clients based upon the data and. and um, you know, we think we're a long ways from the green light uh, to, to say the, sound, the coast is clear. But in a word, our clients, uh, we think, are, are sleeping well at night. And those that, that we do talk to recently say they are and are thankful that they haven't seen the volatility that even a conservative you know, stock and bond allocation uh, would have seen this year with both stocks and bonds down you know, pretty healthily. Um, the traditional conservative model is not doing so well this year. And uh, we're, we're glad that our, our approach is, and we're not taking any victory laps. We're in a, a long marathon here in a, in a very challenging, um, you know, we think uh, ep epotic top uh, of a, something that's in the decades in the making, frankly. Um, so we, uh, we've got a long, long road to hoe with our clients, for sure. All right, um, Mike, I'm just going to ask you real quickly to give an update on gold because gold... Um, I know it's a gold, gold miners are your largest sort of equity holding. We talk about it a lot in this program every week. Uh, and that you know, gold and silver prices have been kind of beaten up a little bit over the past week. Um, interestingly, with everything, you know, looking at the, uh, the market tape uh, last week, uh, I mean, it was really hard to find any green anywhere which I also think is kind of just an interesting you know, milestone in where we are here. There's been sector rotation a lot over the past year plus, um, but this past week, like absolutely everything got sold. Um, but specifically to, to gold and gold miners, do you just have any commentary um, about you know, the action that's going on there and what you think might happen next? Yeah, we, we saw a pretty rapid reversal in mining shares, unfortunately. Uh, they were performing fantastically. Uh, GDX, which is a proxy for the uh, mining stocks uh, was was above $40, $40 a share solidly. And all of a sudden, we saw a, a rapid reversal. And it wasn't just the mining stocks that saw a rapid reversal. It was gold and silver. I'm looking at a chart of gold. We recently hit a swing high of almost 2100 
an ounce. That was about two months ago. But the more recent swing high was, uh, you know, a little over 2,000. Uh, this was last week. And we went from 2,000 down to just under 1,900. So it's only about 100, maybe a little over $100 drop. It's about 5%. It felt like it was worse than that. And frankly, in silver, it was worse than that, the percentage. Um, that caused a reversal in mining shares. It was pretty sharp. Again, on GDX, went from about 41 and change down to 35. That's uh, $6. You know, that's, that's about 15%. That's a sharp drop. However, standing back a little bit, which is always good to do, particularly if emotions are involved, you can take a look at a weekly chart of gold, like I'm doing right now, and you'll see that the triangle breakout, the bullish triangle breakout, the consolidation from August of 20 to um, early this year that broke out in, in January, February is still intact. We broke out of that triangle. We went up to 2100 and we're back at around 1900 here. As long as we stay above 1840, 1850, to me, it looks like that triangle is still intact. Um, the fact that gold stocks are up on the year and gold is up on the year, even while the dollar index, as we mentioned earlier, is has been extremely strong. Here it is up again today. The dollar index, which is a basket of other currencies compared against the dollar, is almost 104. And yet gold and gold stocks are still up. So we're getting some questions from people that are concerned about the pullback in gold and in miners. Our message is to just stay with it, take a deep breath, let it, let it play out. Uh, if you don't have any gold or don't have enough, in your opinion, you should probably think about adding here or buying here. Uh, we did take the opportunity on that last swing high to adjust our hedges on our core gold mining position. We raised that floor up with puts that we paid for by selling call options on half of the position um, up at around 45 on, on GDX. And so we've got protect protection now in the low uh, 30s. So no, we don't like to see the pullback. It hurts. It certainly affects short-term performance. But honestly, it still is a, a bullish construct and there's not too, too much to worry about. All right, thanks. And I'm glad you talked about how you, because uh, we, we we briefly mentioned it last week, um, how you guys had been raising your your hedge there on uh, your mining position. So the nice part is, is if I understand correctly, you know, if, if the mining shares drop, much, you know, they don't have to drop that much further from here for your protection to really begin kicking in, which obviously is a huge part of the risk management that you guys do. Um, related to that, folks, risk management. Um, been getting a lot of questions recently from folks now that the markets have become so rocky about, hey, you know, how do we protect ourselves? And a big reason that I bring, you know, John and Mike and the guys from New Harbor on here uh, is because of their risk managed approach. But if you're looking to just learn more about what are the common ways in which you can hedge your portfolio against a market correction, I've mentioned this before in past months in the program, but you can get our free guide to that at Wealthion dot com slash hedge. So if you haven't uh, read that yet, go there. It just gives you a summary of all the different major common options for ways in which you can, you know, set up hedges and this type of insurance in your portfolio, or more appropriately, in my opinion, work with a professional financial advisor to create a plan for you to implement those in your portfolio. John, I'm going to give you the last word here before I wrap things up. Um, feel free to say whatever you want, but I'd, I'd love just to give you an opportunity as I ask you every week. Um, you talk to lots of people, you get lots of phone calls from people every day who are trying to make, you know, decisions in this environment about how to protect their wealth. Any parting words of advice for folks? 
Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, my my words our words as a as a firm and a team it would be that if you feel um, confused, if you feel like uh, things don't make sense, if you feel like uh, psychologically these markets and and your accounts um, within them uh, are are torturous, um, you should feel that way. That's exactly the environment we're in, and and. You know what we believe our job to do is help you um, with data and with insight and perspective. Kind of help help you ask the questions that um, that that if if not otherwise asked uh, can can be a source of stress, and really bring it back down to your own situation. Um, we're here to kind of talk with our clients about their own situation, and um, you know the the biggest tragedy, one of the biggest tragedies in our in our assessment is. Uh, someone, uh, uh, an individual or a couple or a household that has a pretty good financial uh, footing, if not a really sound one, unwittingly putting that at risk um, because they've gotten seduced into, you know, these markets, which are very, very dangerously uh, seductive right now. Um, we're here to, to help bring that conversation back to our clients and their, and their individual situations. All right, thanks, John. And just a reminder to folks, um, as we do every week on this program, given how complicated the markets are, like John just described, we highly recommend that you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor in building your plan from here, unless you are already incredibly seasoned and experienced, which, you know, from my perspective, almost none of us are. Uh, I'm not. I, I work with, with uh, professionals as well. Um, if you want to, you know, so schedule a meeting with your financial professional to make sure that you know they've got good answers to all the concerns that we've raised in this video. If you don't have one or you want a, uh, a second opinion by one that does understand all these trends and issues, uh, go to Wealthion.com and we'll uh, connect you with a professional advisor who will you know meet with you for free. They'll give you their straight advice. There's no obligation to work with them. Um, John and Mike and their team in New Harbor are principals uh, among that, that, that crew that we offer. Uh, if you want to figure out how to set up one of those consultations, it only takes a couple of seconds. Um, we give you all the details at the end of this video. It's coming up in just a, just a minute or so. Um, all right. And if you have enjoyed this interview with Bill Fleckenstein and would like to see both him on again, but us able to get people of his caliber back onto this program in the future, please help support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. John and Mike, um, you know, this his past week has been a crazy week, and I get the sense that the volatility uh, and the ability of the market to continue to keep us on our toes the way that it has this year is really just getting into second gear here. Um, so who knows what's going to happen next? Um, but whatever it does, we will be tracking it uh, weekly here on this channel together. Thanks so much for joining me for yet another week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thank you, Adam. And we look forward to talking with you next week. All right, Adam. Have a great one. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. 
We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.